0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather this morning to honour you. And Lord, we thank you that you are honoured as your children listen to your voice. Lord, we pray that we may hear your voice this morning as we look into your word together. May you be with me. May I be able to explain clearly what your word says about Moses and about your son Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that he may receive much honour and glory this morning. And we pray this in his name. Amen. <coughs> Well, sometimes it can be costly to take your name off an official register and to put somebody else's name there instead. So we have many different official registers in our country and to your name may be on one and you might want to remove that name and put somebody else's name there instead. An example of this is uh, something that I've been toying with for some time now and that is the property deeds that we have, uh, Jill and I own a property and... It's in my name because when we got married, Jill basically had no assets and I had all the assets, so I'm a bit older than her, and so I purchased the property and we lived in it together and then, of course, we came here and we still own that property. But I'm thinking it might be better to have it in Jill's name uh, these days. Um, I have various reasons for that. Um, basically, I'm thinking that at some point in the future I may get sued uh, for my views on... Um, certain hot-button issues in our culture uh, to do with homosexual marriage and things like that, and I've seen other pastors have moved assets into their wives' names to protect themselves. And so I'm thinking that might be something that I need to do, put Jill's name on the property rather than mine. But it's actually quite costly. I've looked into this, and apparently we have to get the property valued, and any capital gain that has been made since we first purchased it, and then I put it into Jill's name, I have to pay capital gains tax on that, even though Jill is not purchasing the property from me, that it still is moving from one name to another, and so it's quite a costly experience to go through. And we recognise this at times, to get one name removed and another name put on there in a place of that name is actually a difficult uh, task to do. Of course, if you have any tax advice for me about that situation afterwards, uh, please see me. That is as far as I understand it to be. If you can see a way of getting around that, uh, then I'm all ears. But we recognize this. To take somebody's name off and put somebody else's name there can be costly. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at a, a subject that has come up in Exodus chapter 32 to do with God's book, that a book that God has written. And what it costs to blot one name out and to keep another name there instead. And this is what comes up in Exodus chapter 32. Now you may be saying, okay, I don't really understand what the book of Exodus is about, let alone what's happening in Exodus 32. How does this passage fit with Israelite history? Basically, this part of the Bible is that period where the Israelites have left Egypt and have come to basically move around in the desert for a period of 40 years. But before they go round and round in circles in the desert for a time, they come to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law of God, basically the covenant that God is making with the people to be his people. Moses goes up the mountain and is up there for quite a period of time, for 40 days, and while he's up there, the people are down surrounding the mountain waiting for Moses to come back. And so... We then pick up in Exodus 32 with the people waiting for Moses to come back down from the mountain. And while he's up there for such a long period, the people get a little bit antsy. Um, they wonder what's happened to him, and that's where we pick up in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. We read, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So we see this situation. Moses is up on the mountain, he's talking to God, and the Israelites are down at the bottom going, what are we going to do? And this leads to a situation where Moses comes to this position of wanting to offer himself as a substitute for the Israelites. And that's my first main point this morning. I've only got two main points this morning. My first is that Moses fails in offering himself as a substitute. You want to follow my two main points that are listed there on the back of the church bulletin. And the first is that Moses fails in offering himself as a substitute. As we'll see in this passage, Moses offers himself as a substitute for the Israelites, and he actually fails in that regard. Now, how does this all come about? Well, while Moses is up on the mountain, the people say we need another God to worship. And that's what we just read in Exodus chapter 32 verse 1. Exodus 32 verse 1, we see, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. While Moses is up on the mountain, these Israelites have made this idol and they are starting to worship it. They're saying this represents the Lord. This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And they're then starting to basically uh, go into a bit of a riot there at the end of verse 6 as a result of this false worship. What is the reaction of God to what is going on? Well, we see that... God gets very angry and threatens to destroy the Israelites. And we read that in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. God has seen what they are doing and he says, I am going to destroy them for this sin. So what does Moses do? He hears that God is going to destroy them. He hears what the people have done we then see that he goes to try and restore the relationship between these Israelites and God. And how does he do that? Well, he tries to restore the relationship firstly by interceding with God, by speaking to God and telling God that his honour is at stake if he destroys the people for what they've done in making this golden calf. And we read that in verse 11. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God, O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So we see Moses comes before God and says please don't do this and don't do it because if you do then people around Israel will say look at that God, he brought them out of Egypt to destroy them in the desert and so your name will be dishonoured as a result of the destruction that comes. Remember those promises that you gave and keep those promises that you made to your people, particularly to Abraham, Isaac and Israel. And then Moses also in honour of God's name and trying to restore the relationship between Israel and God, he then goes down the mountain to sort out the issue. So he's made intercession before God but he goes down the mountain to sort it out and we read that in verse 15. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. Moses comes down the mountain to try and work out what's going on. And he knows that something's up. This is the sound of singing. They aren't going to war with anyone. They're singing there. So what does Moses do? Well, he gets very angry. Verse 19, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He's very angry, very angry, making people drink gold dust as a result of their sin. And he then goes on in verse 21. He says, he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? And Aaron knows something's up. Verse 22, do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Very interesting description in comparison to back in verse 4 where it says that Aaron took What they handed him and made it into an idol, cast it in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Sounds very different from a calf just emerging from the fire. This is Aaron's account as he sees Moses being very angry about what has happened. And so Moses realises he has to get control of the people. They're running wild, we see in verse 25. And so to get control of the people, he orders the Levites, to bring control with the sword. And we read that in verse 25. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to the enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbour. The Levites did as Moses commanded and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today for you are against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you this day. Moses brings about a slaughter amongst the Israelites to get them under control. They're just running wild and the sword is the method that he uses to bring them back to sobriety, to bring them back under control. And then he continues. He's still seeking to restore this relationship between God and the people after their sin. And so the next day, we read in verse 30, Moses said to the people, "You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." He realizes that the the situation hasn't been resolved. That atonement needs to be made. That somehow God needs to be at one again with his people. That word atonement means to reconcile, to bring at one-ment, where in the past there is discord. You need to bring the two people back together, and that's the people, are the Israelites, and God. He says, hopefully I can go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses then goes up to the Lord in verse 31. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. He starts the reconciliation by confessing the sin. He doesn't minimize the sin like Aaron sought to do. Aaron went, oh, it wasn't really my fault, it's the people's fault, and the calf just emerged. No, Moses goes and says to God that we have indeed, these people have committed great sin. And then he says, and he explains what the sin is, they have made themselves gods of gold. And then in verse 32, he asks for forgiveness. He says in verse 32, but now please forgive their sin. And then he makes an extraordinary statement. Verse 32, but now please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Then blot me out of the book you have written. If you won't forgive these people, God, then blot my name out and let these people go free. What is he talking about? What's this book that God has written? Well, God has ordained all things and he has names of people who have eternal life. This book of life, this book that God has written comes up a number of times in the Bible and we'll look at some other references later on. But here Moses knows that there are some people that are in God's book and those people have eternal life. But here Moses is saying, I love these people so much It would be better if you blot my name out and let these people go free. Moses offers himself as a substitute for these people so that they can go free, so that their sin is overlooked by God. Does God accept this? Is Moses a success in offering himself as a substitute here? No. We read in verse 33, The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. It is those who have sinned against me that I blot out, not those who have not sinned. And so you cannot offer yourself as a substitute in their place. And then God punishes the Israelites as a result. He says in verse 34, now go lead my people, lead the people to the place I spoke of and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Now this seems a bit dismal reading. You see these Israelites, God has brought them thus far, he has blessed them greatly by bringing them out of Egypt, and then they go and worship this idol, and there seems to be no place for atonement for them, and so that people have God's wrath descend upon them. This plague comes, and destroys many of them for what they have done. Moses makes an attempt at atonement. He asks that his name will be blotted out, but is a failure in this regard. Is there anything in this that is helpful for us today? Is there any hope for us that if we have sinned against God, that there is a place for someone to come along as a substitute for us? Well, I think verse 32 there is a mini-prophecy, an indication that points towards a substitute that is to come that would be a success in our place. And that brings me to my second main point this morning. Christ succeeds in offering himself as a substitute. Christ succeeds in offering himself as a substitute. Like the Israelites, we have all sinned against God. Now I doubt anyone here has made a golden calf at any point in their life. Maybe that you have had some other ornament in the house that you have given spiritual significance to and maybe it is made of gold. But generally speaking, I don't think anyone here has made a golden calf to the extent that the Israelites made. But we are all guilty of idolatry. We have worshipped things in the place of God. We have put things in priority over God. What kind of things? Well, it can be material things. We can worship houses. We can worship cars. We can worship all kinds of things. We can worship money. We can put those things first and foremost in our lives. They are the focus of our lives rather than God being the focus. We can worship other people. We can put other people in charge of our lives. We can worship those around us and the praise that we get from them and make them into idols. We live our lives so that they will praise us, that they will give us good things rather than worshipping God. And, of course, we all make idols of our own selves at times as well. we We turn ourselves into idols and we want to worship ourselves. We are the gods of our lives rather than God being the God of our lives. And like God did to the Israelites, God gets angry with sin and threatens to punish us. We read in Revelation 21 verse 8 where it says, The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. All those people who commit those kinds of sins, cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters and all liars, that's us, we're all liars. We're all idolaters. Where is our place? Our place is in the fiery lake of burning sulphur, the second death. But, thankfully... There is someone who has come to restore the relationship between us and God. There is a new Moses, someone who comes to reconcile us before God, to put us at one again with God. Who is that? Well, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come to be a substitute for us and take that sin that we deserve. Like Moses, Christ offers himself in your place Jesus asked God that He be blotted out for a time, so that Your name might remain in His book. And an example of Him, uh, Him taking this place for us, is told to us in that passage we just read from Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one, it says, "God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God." Moses was unsuccessful in taking the place of the Israelites. But Jesus was made sin by who? By God. God accepted him. God made him who had no sin to be sin. Jesus Christ became sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus died at the cross, he was blotted by God with our sin, with his wrath that we deserve, was poured out upon Jesus Christ. He experienced the weight of God's wrath in our place. That wrath that we deserve was poured out on him. Now you may ask, well, how can Christ be accepted as a substitute but Moses was not? Why was Moses unsuccessful but Christ is successful in becoming sin, in being blotted by God? Well, there's two good reasons for that. Firstly, Moses is a failure, I think, because Moses had his own sin problem. Moses couldn't pay for the sins of others because he had his own sins to pay for. Remember that verse in Exodus chapter 32? In verse 33, it says, The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Whoever has sinned against me. Had Moses sinned against God? Yes, he was a sinner as well. He was even a murderer. He killed an Egyptian way back in Egypt. He has sinned against God. We see God was even going to kill Moses at one point because he hadn't circumcised his son as he should have. Very interesting text in itself. We see God is going to and his wife steps in and circumcises the son. Moses was a sinner. So Moses should be blotted out of God's book as well. He couldn't offer himself in place of the Israelites. His name was deserved to be blotted out too, whereas Christ is different. What did that verse say in 2 Corinthians 5.21? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus had no sin, which means that Jesus then could take our sin upon him. Jesus never deserved to be blotted out from God's book because Jesus never sinned, which means that Jesus could offer himself as a substitute. It's why it's so dangerous if we ever allow ourselves to consider that Jesus sinned, that Jesus did the wrong thing at some point in his life. It's why some of those apocryphal uh, books, uh, there's uh, Pseudepigrapha, there's a Gospel of Thomas, that's not part of your New Testament, actually speaks about Jesus as a little boy striking another child dead for bumping into him. It's wrong because Jesus wouldn't do that. I mean, yes, he could have, I guess, in some regards. It's very hard to say what Jesus can and can't do, but it just seems out of place with Jesus' character to just strike someone dead for bumping into him. Jesus had no sin. He who had no sin became sin. And so that's why Jesus was successful in offering himself as a substitute in comparison to Moses. Moses was a sinner. Jesus was not. And so Jesus could put himself in our place. Another reason that Jesus could offer himself as a substitute successfully and take it for the substitute of many is because Jesus was also God. Jesus wasn't just human. He's also God. Moses might have been able, if he'd been sinless, to offer himself up for the place of one person. But that's all he could do, a life for a life. But Jesus can offer his life for many because he is God. His life is of infinite value. When Jesus was blotted by God at the cross with our sin and with, our, and with God's wrath, he continued to shine through. He is the son of righteousness described in Malachi 4. He continues to shine through, sun being sun, not S-O-N, S-U-N. He's the son of righteousness. He shines through. As God blots him with your sin, Jesus takes it. Why? Because he is not just human, but he is God himself. He continues. The more sin that's piled upon Christ, the more he shines through. The more he is blotted, the more he shines through. That's why he's a successful substitute for us. Moses could never do that. He is not the Son of Righteousness. Christ alone is the Son of Righteousness. And so this means that if you're united with Christ, then you will have eternal life. Your name remains in God's book. And that is what's described for us in Romans 6, verse 5 through to 8. Romans 6, verse 5 reads, If we have been united with him, that's Jesus, like this in his death, we'll also be united with him in his resurrection. If we're united with Christ in his death, we are also united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with. Your sin is done away with, in Christ at his resurrection. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. What is this text saying? Saying that if you're in Christ, if you have Christ as your substitute, your name remains in the book that God has written and you will live eternally in heaven. Your name is not blotted out because Christ was blotted on your behalf. And the Apostle John describes heaven with these words and mentions this book of life. He says in verse 23 of Revelation 21, chapter 21, verse 23 of Revelation, it says, The city, this is the heavenly city, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But only those who can enter into God's heaven, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, what does that mean? It means that you enter into heaven one day and will rejoice forever with Christ in paradise. And this is a wonderful truth. It means if you're in Christ, if you have died with Christ and have been raised with him, then your name is in God's book and it will never be blotted out. We often put our names into different books. We want our names in certain books. I'm a bit of a reader, which means I have... Quite a few books. I have an extensive library. It continues to grow each year as the church continues to be generous and give me a book allowance. It continues to expand and grow. And so that means I have quite a bit of a library these days. And I think it's worthwhile, because I lend out my books, to have my name inside my books. Not to say that I wrote my books, uh, but I'd like to put my name in there so that if anyone ever borrows a book, and I do lend them out quite uh, frequently, and they see my name in the front, they might go, oh, that's right, this is Joel's, and return it. But I have a few thousand books these days, and uh, that's quite a job, and I haven't written my name in them previously. So what I've done, I've printed off a whole stack of little labels um, that have my name and my email address and phone number on them, and at the moment I'm paying Joshua uh, a dollar for basically an hour or two to put these little stickers in front of my books. And so yesterday morning was one of those days while I'm working in my office, he's there taking books off the shelf and putting little stickers inside all my books. And this is a good thing for me. It's a valuable thing. It means that my books may return once I've lent them out. But there's one book that is better to have your name in than all the books of the world. You could try and get your name in every book of the world, that you own that book and that's significant to you because that means that book belongs to you. But there's one book that is far superior to all those books and that is the book that God has written. Because if your name is in God's book, in the book of the Lamb, it means that you have eternal life. You are inheriting eternal life. And I would give up all my library with all my names in front of all those books So that my name could be in that book of life. It is of worth greater value. And the cost of it being there is far superior than paying Joshua a dollar an hour to put my name in those books. He thinks he's getting a good deal. Doesn't seem to cost me much, but it is a cost. It cost Jesus his life. It cost him the cross it cost him the wrath of God coming upon him to put your name in that book, to keep your name in that book so it would not be blotted out because of your sin. You may be saying, okay, so how do I get to have my name stay in that book? I recognize I'm a sinner. How do I have my name preserved in that book of life? Well, that's where Romans 10:9 is an example of instructions on how to have your name preserved in that book. Romans chapter 10 verse nine says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you want your name preserved in God's book? Then call on the name of the Lord. Call on Christ. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died in your place and your name is preserved. You need to trust that Jesus Christ died for you and if you do that, then you have eternal life. So what are your golden calves? What is your golden calf that you worship? Is it yourself? Is it someone else? Is it some sort of material possession? What is it that you worship? And are you willing to call on Jesus Christ to die on your behalf for your worship of your golden calf. If you've never called on him before, call on him now. Do not delay. Beg him to be blotted on your behalf so that your name is preserved in the book of life. And if your name is written in the book of life, if you know that you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have believed in him and your name is written there, Do you let that fact govern your life? The gospel, the good news that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life through faith in him is such wonderful news, it's such good news that it should dictate how you live in everything. Everything that you do with your life should be governed by the gospel. The way that you live, the way that you act in the workplace, the way that you act around your family members, everything you do should be governed by that joy that knowledge you have that you are in God's book, do you allow that to be the case? Do you consider each day what it is to be written in the Lamb's book of life rather than be blotted out of that book because of your sin? Do you also let that push you to share this good news with those around you? Think about the many people in your life. How many of them are going to be blotted out of that book because of their sin? And can you come to them and share the good news of Jesus Christ so that their name is preserved, that Christ is blotted on their behalf just like he was blotted on your behalf, so that they too can enjoy eternal life with you and Jesus Christ in heaven. Who do you need to share the good news with so that their name is preserved in the book of life? Let us come before God now in prayer. Let us speak with him. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you did send your son, that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Lord, we thank you that we have eternal life because our names are written in the book of life, that we are not going to go to the fiery lake, the second death, but because we've trusted in Christ, we have eternal life. We pray that everyone in this room would put their trust in Christ and we pray that, that they may govern the way that we live. May we keep the gospel close to our hearts at all waking moments. May we continue to remember the joy it is to have Christ blotted on our behalf so that we can go free. And so, Lord, we pray that we may serve you with joy and share the good news with those around us. May it make us tremble to consider that those that we love may be blotted out And Lord, may we then share the good news with them and see them come to repentance and faith as well. And we pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.